Shabbat Shalom. I have this sense of deja vu. Oh yeah, there is a good reason for that, isn't there? Thank you, Shana Rav Beth, my rabbi, and the privilege of hearing the sweetest voice ever, Cantor Rosalind Barrick. Uh, so many of, yeah, I, yes, we should all be doing that. Um, so many of you have traveled from far and wide for this uh, Shabbat, uh, including Eddie Matzka, who came from Southeast Asia. So he's the son of past president Paul Matzka. Eddie, thank you. And of course, to have Rabbi Bauer in the congregation and Rabbi Zarin in the congregation, it's, it's truly a privilege. A rabbi walking home from synagogue saw in the distance a good friend, a pious and learned man who usually could best the rabbi in religious arguments. The rabbi walked faster and faster in order to catch up to his friend, but before he could overtake him, he was horrified to see him go into a Chinese restaurant and not a kosher one at that. Standing at the door, he observed the waiter taking his order and then reappearing with a platter full of spare ribs, shrimp and lobster sauce, crab ragoon, and other treif delicacies. The friend began to feast on the sumptuous platter when, unable to remain silent any longer, the rabbi burst into the restaurant to reproach his friend. Morris, what are you doing? I saw you come into this restaurant, order this filth, and now you're eating in violation of everything we are taught about dietary laws, actions that do not accord your pious reputation. Morris replied, Rabbi, did you see me enter the restaurant? Yes, nodded the rabbi. Did you see me order the meal? Yes. Did you see the waiter bring me the food? Yes. Did you see me eat it? Yes. Then, Rabbi, he continued, I do not see what the problem is here. The entire meal was done under rabbinical supervision. <laughs> this anecdote raises the question at the heart of Korach, this week's Torah portion. What constitutes holiness? What constitutes holiness? Is holiness determined by the food we eat and prepare? Is it the dishes we serve food on? The manner in which animals are slaughtered? The prayers we pray, the meditations of our hearts, the mitzvot we fulfill? Is it the truth we tell or the lies we shun? Do parents who grease the way for their children to be admitted to prominent universities care about or have any sense of what constitutes holiness? Do politicians who lie with impunity and dismiss the truth by calling it fake news need a refresher course in ethical behavior? Does the recent unanimous vote of the San Francisco board to destroy the WPA Washington High School mural entitled the Life of Washington by depression artist Victor Artinoff, because it makes students feel unsafe, constitute holiness? 
I seem to recall another era that destroyed art that was determined degenerate. The school board appears to be ignorant of the comment attributed to Voltaire. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. Do those lacking civil conduct need to live by a standard of holiness? Most people have their own notion of what is holy and what is profane. And often one and not the other is adhered to with abandon. The Baal Shem Tov taught that everything created by God contains a spark of holiness. Two sections of Korach, this week's Torah portion, magnify the Baal Shem Tov's guide for holiness. In Numbers 16, Korach, a second cousin of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, questions whether holiness is the exclusive domain of Moses and Aaron. All the community of Israel are holy, and God is among them all. Why do you lift yourself above them? demanded Korach. Korach criticizes Moses and Aaron because he believes that they present themselves as being holier than everyone else. You have gone too far, for all the community is holy. All of them, the Lord is in their midst. Rav Lachem, you have overreached. Why do you set yourself above the people? A challenge to the leadership of Moses and Aaron. To resolve this threat, Moses proposes a contest with God as the judge. Come morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy and will grant him access to himself. He will grant access to the one he has chosen. Do this. You, Korach, and all your band take fire pans and tomorrow put fire in them and lay incense on them before the Lord. Then the man whom the Lord chooses, he shall be holy. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Korach agrees to this challenge, perhaps because he is convinced of the righteousness of his case. However, things don't go as he might have hoped because Moses warns everyone to stand back and then the earth opens up and swallows Korach and his followers and their households and possessions, seeming to prove that Moses is correct and that Korach is not the arbiter of holiness. Interesting, the authorship of 11 beautiful psalms are attributed to the sons of Korach and express deep devotion and a spirit of gratitude and humility to God. They seem to indicate that Korach and his followers embodied, embodied commanding holiness. It's a paradox. Korach dies, yet he is memorialized through his descendants with these beautiful words. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O God. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though earth give way and the mountains fall into the hearts of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. 
Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Nevertheless, commentators do not look favorably upon Korach. The Torah portion for this week, Korach, opens with the words, Vayikach Korach, and Korach took. But we're not told what he took because he challenged the leadership of Moses, some argue, that he tried to seize the reins of power, of power and leadership. The rabbis contrast the statement that Korach took with a comment that Moses makes. I have not taken the ass of any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. In the accompanying Haftarah from the book of Samuel, the priest prophet Samuel echoes this statement. Whose ox have I taken or whose ass have I taken? Whom have I defrauded or whom have I robbed? From whom have I taken a bribe to look the other way? I will return it to you. The people responded, you have not defrauded us, you have not robbed us, and you have taken nothing from anyone. In a second text, in Korach, the biblical author validates Aaron's leadership. Aaron collects the staffs of tribal leaders and puts them overnight in the tent of encounter. The next day, Aaron's staff alone is miraculously transformed. It brought, brought forth sprouts, produced blossoms, and bore almonds. Legend holds that this rod continued to be used by the kings of Israel until the end of the, the monarchy when it disappeared, and some maintain that it will only reappear with the coming of the Messiah, until which time each individual will be responsible to make his own holiness sprout, blossom, and bear fruit in order to be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing it, loving your fellow creatures and drawing them near to Torah. Our sacred texts are filled with exhortations to holiness. You shall be holy, for I, God, am holy. How? Love your neighbor as yourself. Even if loving God is difficult, if you love your neighbor, you draw closer to holiness. But then listen to the succeeding words that follow, love your neighbor as yourself. You must not allow your cattle to mate with a different species. You must not sow two different kinds of seed in the same field. You must not wear a garment made from a mixture of wool and linen. Why is love your neighbor as yourself followed by this bizarre law of Shatner's which forbids mixing of dissimilar species and agricultural products. Why did the biblical author think it was a good idea to say, love thy neighbor as thyself, don't mix wool and linen? <laughs> Two concepts that seem entirely unrelated. Despite the confusing relationship between the two, the author expressed a core concept of what it means to be holy. It is the principle of boundaries. For the biblical author, Kedusha holiness carries the notion 
of separateness. Each Shabbat ends with the Havdalah prayer that thanks God for separations. Hamavdil bein kodesh lochol, between the holy and the profane, the seventh day and the six working days, between Israel and the other nations, and so forth. Furthermore, words constructed from the Hebrew root letters, kuf, dalad, shin, demonstrate the principle of separation of boundaries between the sacred and the secular, the pure and the impure, the permitted and the forbidden, central to the world of both priestly and rabbinic Judaism. This separation finds expression in prohibitions of mixing dairy and meat, wool and linen, sowing a field with mixed seed, and crossbreeding of plants and animals and in our ritual lives. Kedusha, the separation between the consecrated and the unconsecrated components of daily living. Kiddush, the Sabbath wine separates ordinary days from the, from the holy days of the Sabbath. The Chatzi Kaddish, the half Kaddish, separates the major portions of the liturgy. Mourner's Kaddish separates the living from the dead. Kedushin separates the married from the unmarried. The notion that there should be limitations and boundaries seemed outmoded today, but for the biblical mind, separateness is an inextricable component of a sanctified life, and it was important as the most uplifting doctrine because it defines holiness in these ways. One, the distinction between man and God. The Jewish understanding of the universe is incompatible with the belief that man could become God. Two, the distinction between man and woman. Jewish tradition teaches that there is a distinction between the sexes, not only anatomically, but in the gender-specific roles in the social, religious, and cultural environment. Three, the distinction between holy and common time. Jews invented the Sabbath, separating out one day from the rest of the week. Four, the distinction between human beings and animals. Jews elevate and sanctified human needs by defining behaviors, limiting and, per and permitting them. Judaism does not view animals as equal to human beings, even though animal rights activists place animals on an equal plane with human beings, affording them privileges never before imagined. Five, the distinction between life and death. Life remains separate from death. Jews may not be obsessed with mourning or living in the past. Six, the distinction between good and evil. Jewish law denounces the notion that certain actions are permitted some of the time and forbidden other times. The list goes on and on. Honesty and lying, civility versus incivility, clean speech versus lewd language, selfishness versus generosity. What do restraint and boundaries therefore represent? Theologian Eugene B. Borowitz once responded to the question of why Jews do not pronounce the ineffable four-letter name of God even if we think we know how to do so. Because, he said, we don't have to say everything we know or think. Demonstrating such self-discipline 
is at the heart of a comment by Rabbi Harold Kushner in his article entitled, The Bread of Self-Restraint, in which he offers guidance on boundaries based on the verse in this week's Torah portion, you shall afflict your souls. Kushner suggests it means you shall restrain your instincts. Thus Jewish dietary rules are symbolic of discipline and the need to control impulses, need to control instincts and appetites by saying no to temptation and thereby lifting a significant part of daily life to a higher spiritual level. That is why the list of forbidden foods enumerated in Leviticus ends with the admonition, you shall sanctify yourselves and you shall be holy. Its, the, it's focus is the elevation of the craving for food to a level of holiness, thereby mastering instincts and desires. What makes us human is saying no to many things. We don't eat everything we desire. We don't say everything on our minds. We don't take anything we want, buy everything we crave, have intimate contact with anyone we long for, murder anyone who angers us, destroy property because someone may have wronged us. In short, we do not give in to every whim, craving, or desire, or, imp or impulse, what Sigmund Freud called the id. Instead, we affirm boundaries, boundaries that are the foundation of a just and civil society. Impulse control not only makes us human, but also separates us from animals that are ruled by instincts. We are truly free when we can gain mastery over ourselves and not give in to every impulse. Harold Kushner calls mitzvot spiritual calisthenics, designed to teach us to control the most basic instincts of hunger, sex, anger, acquisitiveness, idolatry, and so forth. We do mitzvot not because of anticipation of reward or fear or punishment, but to hold back our lust and to make us into better human beings. Showing self-restraint guards us against self-indulgence, immoral, antisocial, and irreligious behavior. A life sanctified by mitzvot may not assure us of external rewards, but it develops character by sometimes saying no to desire and saying yes to restraint. Freedom is not about living with restraints. Freedom is about being able to choose what binds us. Amen.